All right, this morning we look to our text in 1 Corinthians 14, chapter uh, 14, verse 34 to 40. I'll be reading those verses this morning from the New American Standard Bible Translation. And so we begin. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. May God bless the reading of his word. Today I've entitled the sermon, Order in the Church, Part 2. Last week we discovered what God's design and order is for the church related to the gifts. And all of the things that we have looked at so far are correctives from Paul the Apostle as he seeks to correct the Corinthian church, but also bring them away from the factions that they had developed. And so he wants to correct the particular actions, but he also wants to make sure that they don't fall into disunity and schism. He wants to draw them near to Christ and he wants to draw them near to his voice. But I also want to say in this text, this text is weighted with much controversy. There are many who look at this text and want to ignore what it says. There are many who look at this text and misinterpret what it says. But this morning, we want to look at this text and understand what the Holy Spirit has given to us and what Paul meant by what he said, because he certainly meant what he said. And we have to place it in its proper context. But I do want to give a refrain to you. Paul here is not appealing to something that is simply cultural. He's not appealing to culture. He's not appealing to something that is rooted in human power or nobility. He is concerned first with order. He is helping the Corinthians to establish order, decency, and peace within their fellowship. He wants them to establish order, decency, and peace within their fellowship. You can then be sure that what they have presently, as we look at the text, is disorder. They are indecent. They are striving against each other. Paul wants to first correct that. And in correcting that, there are particular commands that he gives, not his commands, but the Lord's. If they're to be united, they are going to have to do what the Lord says. But what we can be sure of is what we're sure of today in the church. This much you and I can apply to accomplish order, decency and peace within their fellowship. It was not up to them to formulate their own way, just like it's not up to us. How do we have order in the church? How do we have decency in the church? How do we have peace within our fellowship? Well, we must hear the voice of the Lord. We must do what the Lord has decreed. They were to follow God's will and his decree. They were to follow specifically his will and his decrees. During the time in which Paul wrote this letter, I want to I want you to be convinced of one thing. He held apostolic authority from God to declare God's will to his church. I am convinced of that, just as I believe you are. When Paul wrote this letter, he held apostolic authority from God to declare God's will to his church. That is where we must begin, because if we don't begin there, we begin to argue against what Paul has written by the Holy Spirit from God with some sense of bias, cultural sentiment, frustration, existentialism, meaning experience interprets our reality, interprets our reality. But we can't go that way. For Paul is coming to the Corinthians and by extension to us by the authority that he derives from the Lord God himself. So we believe that we believe that this epistle 
is a part of the divine word. We believe that Paul is consulting God himself concerning the things that are written. By that, I mean, we believe in the divine author. We believe the Holy Spirit wrote these things through human agency. But it is perfect in its original manuscript. We believe that it is inerrant without errors. That doesn't simply mean in its inscription, but how the words come to us. The ideas behind what are said, the philosophy, the agenda, the outcomes, those are perfect as well. And so we look to this text in that way. We must begin there so also we do not try to impose human philosophy on whether we believe what God has done is perfect, righteous, or even necessary. I think a lot of the contempt, especially with what we'll cover today, but a lot of the contempt with the gifts, with ecclesiology, that is the study of the church concerning uh, the theological implications of the church. All those things are up for challenge in the minds of many because they simply don't believe that what God has done is perfect, righteous, or necessary. They don't believe what God has done is perfect, so they must add to it. They don't believe it's fully righteous, so they must work and labor in their own sense of self-righteousness to achieve the outcome. They don't believe it's necessary, so some just scrap it all together. But not us. Simply put, I want you to be convinced of this as we launch forward into uh, not only this text, but what is said in chapter 15. I want you to be convinced of this, that... Christ has purchased the church at the expense of his blood shed on the cross. And therefore, he is the final judge for what the church must do and who the church must be. Christ determines that. Paul was not solely interested with feelings, philosophical sentiment, or even human democracy. He was concerned with what God had established. And how that was practiced in the life of his church. That's our concern. That doesn't mean we have to be cold toward one another. That actually warms our hearts toward one another. Because now we have a standard outside of ourselves. And this is what Paul wanted for the Corinthians. Because if you notice, leading up through all the things we've covered so far, starting with the conflict that brought us here, a lot of the things that the Corinthians were coming up with were from their own minds. From their own hearts, they were very subjective in how they approached what ought to be done in the church. It was based on feelings, factions, emotions. And you and I, we're not against emotions, but our emotions should be informed by the word of God. And when we have them, they're true. But we don't use those emotions to help God with his decrees. Paul wanted to get them away from that. He wanted to get the Corinthians away from that. So in saying that, we look to our text this morning and we start with verse 34. Said very plainly what he says. I believe there's a context. I believe even those who in this church fellowship and those who may at the extension of the ministry that happens here may hear this, that they'll be encouraged. Because anytime plain speaking is had, then there's a plain explanation that goes with it. Verse 34, he says, the women are to keep silent in the churches. And then he says, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. Within our text, although we've established the overarching picture of why Paul is authoritative, derivedly so, In this text, we also want to develop the picture of what he's trying to establish here and what he's not saying here. Of the few things we must establish, I want to console you and encourage you in this area. Paul is not trying to say women are lesser. He's not trying to say women are lesser. He's not saying that women are lesser related to all who are created in God's image, namely male and female. He's not saying women are not as intellectually capable as men. 
He's not saying that. He's not saying women are not free. For we look at passages such as what we find, I believe it's in Galatians, where he talks about our salvation. And he talks about there's no distinction in freedom related to male and female. But there are distinctions in function. And those distinctions in function derive from God and gives us our freedom to operate as who we are. It is true that we are not the same, but it's also true that we are the same related to our salvation in Christ. We may not be the same functionally. We may not do the same things at all times. But within that, the answer to the unity of our genders is the salvation of Jesus Christ granted to us who believe on his name. So he's not saying women are not free. He's not saying women are captives. But rather he is he is saying women are not to use a sense of autonomy, their own sense of autonomy. That is freedom without authority to challenge his order in the church. That's what he's saying. I'll repeat that for you. He's not saying women are not free. He is saying women are not to use a sense of autonomy. That is freedom without authority to challenge his order in the church. Let's back up. That's what's happening. That's what Paul is trying to correct. Paul is not stepping away from the conflict he's been addressing and saying, oh, by the way, women, since you're here, I don't want you speaking. I've heard the passage taught that way. I've heard people study it that way. But that's not the way that Paul meant what he has actually said. You have to look at this in its context. There was up to this point an open challenge, open confusion and disorder. Were women the only ones responsible for this? No. Men were as well. But Paul is taking this moment to address the women and to help them be placed in their proper context. He wasn't saying this to dishearten or discourage them. He wasn't saying women are not to speak at all. Paul would be a hypocrite if that were true. Who was it that told him of the conflict? It was Chloe. He didn't say, Chloe, you're not to speak to me. Make an appointment. Call my assistants. He received what Chloe said. Why? Because what Paul is telling the women here to refrain from is contributing to disorder. He doesn't rebuke Chloe because Chloe doesn't play a part in raising up disorder, challenging God's decrees, challenging prophecy, acting out of concert with the order that he's laying forth in the Corinthian church. We see this as God's hedge of protection. And what Paul says in verse 34, not being permitted to speak and also appealing to the law in that regard. It's very plain that what Paul desires for the women in the church is that they are in humble submission, that they are in humble submission. But listen to this. There's always talk of women being in humble submission. And there's always this raising up of cowardly men. And then you ask the women to submit the cowards. What Paul is also saying is that the men must be humbly submitted to God. What woman would not want to learn at the feet of her husband if he's humbly submitted to God? Paul is also talking about this type of speaking that's not simply speaking, not simply conversation. But these women were challenging prophecy. They were challenging the languages. They were challenging the derived authority that had been vested in the fellowship. They had their hand, these particular women here, had their hand in the factions. But I'll also be very clear that what Paul says and what can be applied, he wants for all the churches. Because this particular woman 
or type of woman that he's referring to is responsible for confusion, responsible for certain disorder outside of the protective hedge of her husband. We see where immorality exists. Paul wants morality, but God's morality outside of instruction where faction exists, where people have rivalries and they're loyal to everybody but who they're supposed to be loyal to. Paul is setting this in order. Women, I want you to be loyal to your husbands. We see this as God's hedge of protection. There are typically two ways in which philosophies engage women. False philosophies. First, they're either subjugated, made to be lesser. Many of the false religions of the world do this. Islam being one of them, but others. But then you have where women in the world's philosophies, systems, and governments are unduly exalted above men. The ideas of feminism and everything else that has come along in the world. This is not what God wants to see in his church. He wants to see neither one of those. He wants to see the hedge of protection that he instituted after man fell in the garden. That he instituted and spoke very plainly and explicitly about in the law. It was expected of the Israelites to govern themselves this way. To protect their women in godliness. There is no other system in the world that not only speaks that way but acts that way. Except the true Christians. But as I've said, let's back up. He's not saying... Women should never speak at all. He's not saying that. Or only speak as permitted by their husbands or men. He's not saying that. That's not in the text. If we said that those things are what is meant, those would be impositions. What is known as eisegesis. Reading meaning through human philosophy into the text. Through those worldly and human philosophies. You and I are very interested in one thing. We're interested in what does the text actually say. Praise God for that. Why then were they not permitted to speak? I went into it, but let's dive deeper. Well, first, it was in light of what Paul was trying to correct. I want to repeat that. This type of speaking he has silenced is specifically related to an issue. And that issue is derived authority in the church. Derived authority in the church. Meaning authority you don't hold in and of yourself. Your authority is derived from someone or somewhere else. In the modern church, what that would look like is the word of God is the authority. Because in it, we have God's words and God himself revealing himself to us. So I don't stand here in authority just because. In fact, what is my authority is the word of God. It's not me. It's what he says. And in as much as I'm saying what he says, then I'm acting in concert with that authority. I think you understand that. But he's trying to eliminate the speaking that's against derived authority. You'll see it creep up in Second Corinthians even more. He's also against this authority that misuses the gifts and openly challenges the gifts in such a way where they don't operate how they should. The idea here, if you were to even look at this through the languages, the idea here is not just speaking. It's not just be quiet because you're speaking. But it is to use speech as a means to unbiblically challenge those Who are speaking for the Lord. So he's telling the women stop doing that. It was to under the guise of learning. And you saw this in the scribes and the Pharisees. Under the guise of learning. To challenge the truth. In in, uh, suggestive ways. And to cause in that disturbance. Distraction. 
and disruption in the fellowship of God, to challenge prophecy in that time, to challenge the gift of languages in that time, and also to challenge the church's governance as derived by God in that time. And to do so under the guise of wanting to learn. It's assaulting people with endless questions that have no foundation in the truth. Pretending to want to learn but not being willing to practice what is taught. Paul appealed to the law. But understand this, it was not because they were under the law that he makes his appeal. He appeals to the law, but they're not under the law. But the law is their reference point as to has what Paul said ever happened before? Is this something new that you're telling us, Paul? Or have you ever had this position or seen this position before? He's not going to a false sense of the law, an apostate sense of the law. He's talking about the actual Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant, which has been fulfilled in Christ and conditionally, they failed as the Israelites to keep it. And thus, we have the new covenant as a mercy. They being the Israelites at that time. Paul appealed to the law, not because they were under the law, but because the law, listen to this, informed the Corinthians why it was not acceptable or necessary to openly accept challenges to the truth from women. Especially women who are supposed to be learning from their husbands with a desire to learn. A desire to learn from and listen to this. This may sound novel to many who practice, try to practice this through cultural sentiment. But but look at this. Learn from and with their husbands at home. Not just learn from, but you're learning with them. The church never has been the true church and never will be a place to challenge the truth. It is a place where we come to agree with the truth, but that assumes something. The truth must be taught. The truth, the truth must be believed. And sometimes our proper response is what? Amen. It's what the word of God says. I agree. But here, that was not what was happening. Instead, there was something else that was happening. And Paul wanted to end that. It was proper for women to remain silent in this way, withholding the open challenge that causes confusion and disorder. They were to withhold from contributing to the open challenge that causes confusion and disorder to grow. And also a humble heart to learn from humble husbands. A heart that wanted peace and order. Wanted to know what thus says the Lord to seek to learn from their husbands. Look with me, if you will, to verse 35. If they desire to learn anything, if there's the true desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, you have to understand something. Again, what was Paul trying to correct? He's not using these words just to as the modern sentiment is to trigger people. He wasn't using these words to cast judgment on women for being women. He wasn't exonerating man just because he's man. Instead, he's trying to correct the perversion of immorality, particularly sexual immorality that was happening in the church in Corinth. You remember that. We know in previous chapters, they were allowing it. They were permitting it. And at the fundamental level, women and men 
were perverting their marriages in this church as they gained lustful admiration for those who were not their spouses. Now, this is happening at an alarming rate in many of the so-called evangelical circles today. That you are presented with an icon, a hero, and there's a wedge with all these programmatic, uh, programmatic ministries driven between you and your spouse. And what is set before you is this icon or icons. And your emotions and affections must be for them or those who speak like them. Not because they're wise or even sound, but just because they're to be presented to you. I would say that's a fitting application. Whereas what Paul says is, learn from your husbands. You already have the proper admiration. You already have the proper love, the proper care. Again, what he's trying to stave off is immorality. Immorality. He's not making a, a, a judgment for and against marriage in and of itself. He doesn't say that in the text. He's talking about actual wives who have actual husbands, not using the husbands in the way that God has decreed. So Paul wants to put a stop to that. We can agree here that learning, as we back up just a little bit, learning in the capacity and context of the church, it's a very intimate thing between the teacher and the learner. That's a very intimate practice. Paul did not want the women in this church to mix that up. Nor the men to take advantage of this. It's why he pairs the husbands and wives together. He also called the husbands to lead well in Christ. He called the husbands to that reality. I mean, that's his point. It's his charter to restore order. Order had gotten away from the Corinthians, especially in this area. So many see it as a negative. And this is a part of the problem. This is why so many are partitioned by genders and everything else in programmatic churches today. Why? Because so many see it as a negative for men to learn and actually speak things fitting for sound doctrine. The unintended consequence then are that women have nowhere to go. They have no one to learn from. Because the man is silenced for having a thirst, a passion, a knowledge has been granted to him from above to study the things of God and to teach them. And if he having a spouse wanting to teach them to his spouse, I believe so much of what is called Christianity today works against that, not for it. The modern church has raised up minglers. People who just mingle in things. People who disrupt the order of the home. Paul didn't want that to suffer as well. Paul was trying to prevent schism and factions from entering the home. It had invaded the church, so he thought on both lines. Let me help the home maintain its order. Let me help the church maintain its order. And you don't see Paul making counseling appointments. He says, husbands, you teach your wives. You counsel your wives. Love them this way. And so it is their task to do so. But you see, as I mentioned, so many are creating partitions and dividers in the church. Where the women are only supposed to talk to the women and the men only to the men. And when the men and when the man and his wife come together, they have nothing to say about the word of God. 
because they're not really taught the word of God. That's an epidemic. Or as I said, they erect some personality. And I'm not just talking about one. I'm talking about all. They erect some personality to do it all for them. So man and his wife can just go on autopilot. Husband doesn't have to teach his wife. Wife doesn't have to learn from her husband. And they can just wait until the personality does it all for them. Microwave so-called Christianity. It's not what Paul wanted. By that I mean something that can be done in an instant, but there's not really that much quality. What Paul wants is he wants the quality of their lives together to reflect what Christ has brought them together for. Here, what Paul is doing is restoring true order. That's why he appeals to the law. He doesn't say, I want to place you back under the law. He doesn't say that man and woman are perfect, but being perfected, this is what that looks like. He's trying to restore true order. Necessary means of instruction. That is for wives to learn from their husbands related to matters concerning the teachings of Christ. Now, listen to this. I don't want you to overthink this. Our minds bring us to scenarios, and I think that's helpful. But for the husband who lacks a wife and the wife who lacks a husband, what should he or she do? Marry for the sake of appearance? No. A woman, please learn at the feet of Christ. Study his word. Know what the word of God teaches. Strengthen your spirit and your soul. O husband who is not married, O man, do the same. What does Micah 6 say? Walk humbly with your God. We see elsewhere Paul's teaching on that subject. But I want to set that before your thinking because Paul is not saying you're in sin if you don't have a husband to teach you. You're in sin, oh man, if you don't have a wife to teach. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you are in that situation as Christians, here's what that should look like. If you're not, well then there's a place for you as well. Here's what your life should look like. Paul addresses it all. He addresses it all. Learning is intimate. He's trying to restore true order and the necessary means for instruction. It is then that there's something assumed here as we bridge between verse 35 and 36 before we get there. It is then the husband must be sound in the faith. He has to be sound. If a husband and a wife exist and live in the context of church fellowship, the husband has to be sound. He must be because he's tasked with a command, a burden that is not burdensome. That is to teach and instruct his wife in the things of the Lord. As we deal with the should nots. It should not be the task of the husband to teach another man's wife. The task of a wife to learn from somebody else's husband. I think you understand what then could ensue in the intimate practice. The impropriety that lurks. Oh, but that preacher is just so distant from his people. No. If there's a husband and a wife, some distance is helpful. The preacher's tasked with proclaiming the word of God. Those who hear, if married, are tasked with learning and teaching and growing together. And then blessing the church with their gifts and the fellowship that they get to enjoy in their home. And I'm not saying that looks like walking around singing hymns. But I'm saying if there's questions to be asked, if there's things to be learned, they are both so sound that they're building and learning in Christ together. That's the picture of the home that God desires, that Paul wanted them to have. Because you know what happens? When the home looks like that, the church will look like that. 
But the husbands must be sound. They must be strong in the faith. He must be capable. Not only to lead his wife, but specifically to lead his wife in teaching her the truth in scriptures. He must possess the ability to field her questions and draw his answers to her from the word of God. Theologically and theologically as it relates to practice. But he also must model that for her in practice. He must explain what is taught clearly and accurately. In this context, it deals with prophecy. That specifically, he was to take the things of prophecy in this historical context. And instead of his wife interrupting and not knowing what things meant and what things were said, she was to ask him at home so that she would not be a false contributor to what was happening. So that he could clarify. So that by the Holy Spirit, he could illuminate. This also assumes the new birth. It assumes agreement in the things of God. This not only eliminates confusion, but it eliminates factions. See how it eliminates factions. These wives being silent in the churches as things are proceeding as they are, if they're having questions, learning from their husbands at home, Listen to how positive this actually sounds. And then you eliminate factions. There's no reason for a woman or man to erect factions. The husband is instructing his wife. She's learning from him. Or personality cultism. You have to find some great author that will contribute to your Christianity. Or some great speaker. Or for males leaving their homes to attend conferences because they just... They can't get enough of the flair of other people. Whilst their wives have no clue what Christianity really is. This eliminates factions, personality cultism, jealousy, envy, and other features evident in the Corinthian church at the time. I'll be very honest about what this actually eliminates. It eliminates the bottom line of the modern evangelical industrial complex where they create your problems and they solve your problems, quote unquote. And by doing so, you have to pay a fee. And you can't do that together as husbands and wives. You have to do it apart. She goes to her deal, her conference, her seminars, and you go to yours. And you really never talk about what you learned at any of those things. Because they're not for that reason. But instead, why don't we replace that with the simple teaching of God's word? Clear. It means people have to teach God's word clearly. The understanding of it, the building up in it, the strengthening of it. Where a man may not have for himself the gift of teaching to do so corporately, but he certainly has the gift to do so with his wife and she to learn from him and she to then instruct others. In the truth. This is glorious. Look with me at verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? I believe that Paul is challenging their challenge. With what he said. It's tied to chronology. By that I mean Paul's question. Is to challenge those who were wrongly challenging the truth. The word of God had not only come to them first, but it had come to all the churches and therefore all needed to follow what was said. It is the standard by which all both learn and teach concerning the church and all things related to life and godliness. But it is also. I think what I'm about to say is going to be very, very controversial in the modern Church at large, so to speak. It is also, listen to this, and I think this is why Paul says it. It is the role of the church to not breach the loving and learning relationship of a submissive wife devoted to her humble husband. Let me put it to you in plain English. 
It's not my job to encroach on a Christian wife and a Christian husband learning together. I don't need to micromanage that. Because that is a blessing from the Lord that I dare not tamper with. It's also not the church's role to breach the husband who is loving and devoted to his wife in teaching her concerning godliness. I don't have to try these manipulative methods of thinking that something is wrong with you. And then I identify what's wrong with you. And then you're convinced something is wrong with you. And then we can get your husband or the wife out of the picture. And then we pick a side as a church. That is the work of Satan. Here, what he wants is Paul wants to stay out of that. Paul says, I don't want to come into your home and teach your wife. Husbands, you teach your wife. Oh, and by the way, I trust the power of God's word. So I trust that it can happen. And I trust that it will happen. Paul did not want to breach the true nature of a humble wife learning from a humble husband and a humble husband actually taking the time to teach his wife, to answer her questions, to enjoy that facet of life together in that way. It assumes study. It assumes the husband is studying. It assumes the wife is studying. For she is asking questions. It assumes both are observant. Listen to this. It assumes both are asking why. Why are things happening as they are? Why are there factions in this church? Should we remain here? The husband should be picking the church based on this. Am I being fed? Am I being fed the truth of God's word? That's the simple way. Well, how how do you choose a church? Am I being fed? Do they care enough about me, about my my soul, my spirit, to feed me God's word so I can instruct my wife or so that I can learn for myself? I said it before, but I want to go back to it as we're bridging from verse 36 to 37. Why was Chloe different? Why was Chloe different? This wasn't just, woman, keep your mouth quiet. This was not that. This was not that. It's wicked to say that in a worldly, humanistic, chauvinistic uh, capacity. Just as it's wicked for women to want to speak simply on the basis of feminism. Competing with men for the purpose of competing with men. Why was Chloe different? Because Paul was certainly trying to arrive at a point. I said it before. Paul did not say anywhere in this text, women should not speak to me. He didn't say that. Priscilla and Aquila, remember the names in Romans? But particularly in our context, Chloe, he said women should learn from her husbands, from from their husbands. I'm sorry, not her husbands. That would be wrong. From their husbands. Women, plural, should learn from their husbands. One woman, one man. Now, I do not know if Chloe was married. I, I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know that with certainty, and I'm okay with not knowing that for certain. But I do know this, and this applies perhaps to the woman who is not married. You can learn from Chloe. I do know she was faithful to Christ. I know that. I am 100% convinced of that. Husband or not. Why and how do I know that? Well, look at this. She brought the raging conflict. That caused disunity, schism, and immorality to flourish in the church. When she approached Paul, Paul did not say, hey, I'm about to write another part to this letter. I want you to keep silent. I can't receive that from you. Paul trusted that the gifts were operative. He trusted the gift of discernment in her. And plus, Chloe's different because... She did not falsely challenge the authority of the word in the church. Rather, she and her people upheld the truth by alerting Paul to the conflict. 
he had addressed to this point throughout the entire epistle. It's why you remember the first thing I said was women are free. Women are free to challenge error, to uphold the truth. There's a freedom in that. There's a protective hedge of the husband informing his wife in the things concerning Christ. And she, when she deems it necessary to see to God's order, not to create disorder, not to sow manipulation and temptation in anyone, bringing forward things that would be challenges to the church. Paul allowed that. He didn't say stop talking, do not talk ever again. He didn't say men and women ought not to engage in conversation. Paul, I believe, is very clear as to Chloe's responsibility, just as it would be the same as any man who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ was truly a brother. He wanted the truth to be upheld. And he accepted that true testimony from male or female. He would not accept open challenge from anyone. But he certainly would not accept open challenge from women who claim to be believers who were not learning from husbands who claim to be believers. Paul is clear about this, that open challenge from a false sense of spirituality would not be tolerated or accepted in the church. In this context, it's clear that Paul warned the women in the church from doing this. Because that is what they were guilty of speaking. It's not just speaking in general. It's what were they saying? What were they using their words to do? He did not silence them in the truth. If he did... That would bring this whole New Testament in ill repute. It would nullify everything here. He did not silence them in the truth. He silenced them in that which seemed to be spiritual, which seemed to be spiritual, but were not explicit commands from the Lord or delegated to the apostles by the Lord of the church. In that, be silent. Learn at home. Ask questions there so that they can be fielded from a husband who loves the Lord, who can explain things to you, and you can learn from him. But be clear, verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. 38, but if anyone does not recognize this, you see the problem? That's the problem. That's the problem he's trying to solve. If anyone does not recognize what he said in verse 37, he is not recognized. Now he's putting a true test before them, the test of assurance in their salvation based on how they received prophecy. It was no one's place in the church to challenge true prophecy with false prophecy. It was not the man's job and role to do so. He had not been tasked with challenging true prophecy. Paul also showed them prophecy in the church age was a direct extension, listen to this, of the apostolic testimony of Christ in the scripture. You want to know where I'm getting that from? Chapter 15. When Paul begins to explain what he does in 15, he's telling you the content of prophecy. He's talking about the content of prophecy. Here we see also in verse 38, any, any male or female who disobeyed the Lord's clear commands or tried to undermine those commands, they were not assumed to be his. As we near the end of 1 Corinthians, some of the questions that we have had together. How do we know that these Corinthians are still brothers or believers, brothers and sisters? Are they receiving the things that Paul is writing or are they going to reject the things that Paul is writing? If they reject them, the Lord does not recognize them. If they receive those things, then they belong to the Lord. But also notice this, there could not be. There could not be those who were true prophets 
or true Christians if they were undermining the truth. Because true prophets and true Christians don't do those things. It goes back to what he said about expelling those who are not his from the church. There was no such thing as true prophets or true Christians who did not take their directives, their orders from the Lord. No such thing. They weren't tasked with just taking some of his commandments. They had to believe all that the Lord commanded. And then they had to learn all that the Lord commanded and learn to apply all that the Lord commanded. Those are who's uh, who the Lord has for his own. Verse 39, therefore, my brethren, he goes back to it just as he started here. Desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in languages or tongues. This was the correction for both the gift of languages and assuming, assuming here the gift of interpretation. Along with, at that time, the gift of prophecy to continue in the church without disruption. But as you and I are here in this age in which we find ourselves, we are tasked with if someone is saying they're practicing these gifts, it has to look the exact same way as it always has. The way the gifts operate have never changed. They've never changed. When people are saying they have the gift of language. Oh, here it says, as they challenge it, here it says that we have to continue these things. No, they must continue in the same way. And if they don't continue in the same way, I don't want an illegitimate gift. I don't want something that man came up with and slapped God's words onto it. I want the actual gifts. And if those actual gifts aren't operative, I'll continue to practice the ones that are. We have to look at the historical context of this. But having said that, it goes back to where we all started. It goes back to what is done in the church is to be done in order. It's to be done in order. I hope what you learn just from chapter 14 is this, that there is order here. There's the expectation of precision, that you, you see compassion in order. It's not just formality or order or we do things this way because God commands. There's a compassion there's perfect motive behind why God wants us to do things and desire what he wants or to refrain from things that he doesn't have for his church. There's order. There was to be order in the church. Next time. We look at not only the content of the gospel and the things that took place in the gospel, but we look at how prophecy has shaped what is written in chapter 15. We will look to that next time. Let's pray.